Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what we're doing this time round is the summary of year two of the Ukraine war, because sadly, we're now moving into year three. And if you've been a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I did one about the history of Ukraine. I did a one-year summary. I've done one about Vladimir Zelensky's TV show. Clearly, I have an interest in this, and to give you a bit of a refresher, a bit of a review on why, I don't have any Ukrainian heritage in me whatsoever, but this is the biggest war in Europe since World War II for 75, 80 years. So that's a big deal. It's also the first time since Afghanistan, and I'm talking about 19. 70s Afghanistan on into the 80s of Russia going to war as well and it's interesting to see how it works so it's one of these things where why are you doing this this is just pure history but is it it's seeped into pop culture and the whole story is terrible it shouldn't have happened but it is happening and I'd like to put it into as always a bit of historical context and strip out some of the hyperbole, Jem said politely, that you're getting on social media. So, going all the way back, it's fascinating how the rest of the world has been dealing with Vladimir Putin since he came to power on New Year's Eve, well, New Year's Eve just before the year 2000. So he has been around for in power in one form or another for nearly 25 years. Going back even further, we have the fall, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. And then from that, we get the Russian Federation. Some countries that hadn't existed for generations, places like Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Mongolia and Belarus, these countries are able to shrug off central authority, although they're still very much beholden to Russia, including Ukraine as well. There's then this period of like, well, is Russia going to become a democracy? And 
indeed we get Vladimir Putin winning actual elections. And it's fascinating to me that in 2024, even though we all know that Vladimir Putin is a dictator, he still feels that there needs to be this fig leaf of him being the president and to run a completely corrupt, biased, predictable election. But he does feel like he has to go through that. This reminds me of the Roman emperors. Now, for the record, and I've had a few people say, oh, Jeff, but it, it's, it's lost its meaning. Okay, we get literally the word emperor from imperator, the Latin, which is what these Roman leaders called themselves, which is obviously where we use the word emperor. But what's interesting is that a Roman emperor is very different to a Chinese emperor. A Chinese emperor was semi-divine, l- like the monarchs of Europe after the Roman Empire. I'm your king! Well, I didn't vote for you! You don't vote for kings! The Chinese emperor had absolute power, was responsible to no one, and everybody had to listen to their opinions and had to do exactly what they said. For better or for worse, that's a whole other story. But the interesting thing with the Romans is imperator doesn't mean divine ruler or king or something like that. Imperator literally means successful general. Now, many of these emperors weren't actually generals, but quite a few of them were. While calling them a successful general isn't the same thing as an emperor, it's clearly a compliment, it does show that they have limitations of their power. And indeed, you get people like Caligula, or you get someone like Nero, who seems to just push the boundaries and is seen to be too big for their boots, and they therefore get a terrible write-up. It shows you that there are limitations to this, and it's the same thing with Putin. He knows that he has to play the game. And what's interesting is it worked really well for him pretty much until the invasion in 2022. To refresh your memory, so he comes in, and nobody's quite sure what to make of him. Everybody knows he's ex-KGB, but he's become powerful within a democracy. He was a nobody when the Berlin Wall came down. And he wasn't a KGB assassin or anything like that. He was, in essence, a clerk. He did the paperwork and back at the base. Now, he's obviously very keen on judo, and he was a member of the International Judo Committee, a spokesperson for it. So he clearly knows what he's doing, but he also loves to project that tough guy role. That's Putin at the beginning, but it becomes clearer as things pass along that this isn't just tough Russian democracy. He's clearly pretty autocratic and it only gets worse. But here is the interesting stuff. Putin, presumably because of his KGB background, was always one step ahead of the West. I'm saying that in inverted commas. For example, when there was the poisoning of Litvinenko or those other poisoning in Salisbury, this stuff happened so fast that by the time British authorities could respond to it, the Russian operatives were back safely in Russia. And while we've got all the evidence to say we need to talk to these persons of interest, Russia doesn't extradite its own citizens. So once you get back to Russia, you're safe. And even though it's clearly Russian government-backed, no serious sanctions. There was no massive censuring of Russia over these events. And it was the same thing when they were fighting uh, the, the, in the Caucasus. This is what brought Putin to power and just the devastation that Russia wreaked and people just 
shrugged. The the global community went, that's kind of how Russia fights a war. And they are fighting it in their own backyard. So just, just leave them to it. And people did the same thing with Syria and the civil war in Syria. And so when we move on to Ukraine, is there any surprise that they just level towns and cities? That artillery is the solution? That there's the completely unimaginative of just send conscripts in? Now, more on that uh, in a little bit. So we let him get away with things. The biggest thing we let Putin get away with was in 2014, when we now know the Wagner Group went into eastern Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula and took over. Hardly a shot was fired. Certainly no civilians were, were wounded or injured. It was a bloodless coup as they land-grabbed a part of a former Soviet state, yes, but now its own independent state. And indeed, Ukrainians and Russians, the Ukrainian language is very similar to Russian, and there's lots of people over the borders, you know, uncles and aunts on both sides of the borders. They are very closely linked. But what's interesting is that this war has forever separated those two nations. Well, we'll come back to that. But 2014, clearly, Russia broke the rules. What happened? There were a few sanctions, a bit of a slap on the wrist. But also, you had the Winter Olympics in Sochi. You had the Football FIFA World Cup in Russia in 2018. This is years after these events, and everything continued. Putin, if you like, at the time of the World Cup, was at his absolute peak. We can say that in hindsight. He was in total control of his country. He'd managed to grab a chunk of another country, and yet he's hosting the most prestigious international event ever, short of the Olympics. But, you know, Moscow had the Olympics in 1980. So things are going very well for Putin. But then he makes a huge mistake with Ukraine. Not just doing it, but like I say, the thing about him is he does stuff in places we don't know he's going to do them. And by the time he's done them, it's done. What are you going to do? Going back to 2014, Russia had taken control of those areas without a shot fired. Is NATO now going to invade and trigger a war with Russia? No, no, it isn't. It's a done deal. But the problem leading up to the invasion in 2022 was for months, Putin was carrying out rhetoric about Ukraine's always being part of Russia, troops amassing on the borders, field hospitals were being raised. It's hard to say that he's bluffing when he's literally raising up field hospitals. Why would you do that if it's just an exercise? There was more military maneuvering in Belarus, which is puppet to Russia. It's a bit more complicated than that, but I just don't have time. And so if you're doing that for months and it's clear what you want to do, even though nobody believed he would do it, even that managed to galvanize the EU. And what's interesting by then is, of course, Britain had separated from the EU. But the common interests of the West meant that Britain was able to work in conjunction with the EU and sometimes respond faster than the EU to supply weapons. Things like tanks, for example, the first country in the world that said you could have some modern tanks was Britain. But that gave America the fig leaf of saying, OK, you can have some Abrams tanks as well, because America couldn't go first. So whereas America is given more of everything, Britain's actually been at the forefront of sending things like heavy vehicles, like tanks, and indeed cruise missiles, like Storm Shadow missiles. 
which are also French manufactured as well. The French have started sending them too. But it was Britain who did it first, even though if you look on a map, Britain's further away than the likes of Germany to these situations. So he invades in 2022. And as I said in the previous episodes I've done about this, my wife and I that night, we just lay there in bed staring at the ceiling. And this is why I want to say that the Ukraine war is an important learning point if you have any interest in history. Because it is a reminder of what all previous conflicts were like. Not obviously in terms of equipment or location. Those things have changed massively over the millennia. But when we talk about the Napoleonic Wars or World War II or the Hundred Years' War, there are these assumptions about them that people knew which direction they were going. Oh, they were, this was always going to happen. America was always going to break away from Britain in the Revolutionary Wars. There are a number of books who said, you know, here are the key moments that it wouldn't have taken much to have actually brought it back off the brink and Britain keeps its colonies. Those sorts of things. And so while I'm not a huge fan of counterfactuals because it starts building up what if, what if, what ifs, it is a point that... I hate the phrase, and I've, I've used it many times before, saying I don't like histories written by the winners. That's not actually the case. It's loads of examples where that's not true. But the point is a narrative, a nice, neat narrative is made. And the danger of me summarizing what's been going on is it sounds like, oh, this was always going to happen. Everybody feared a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Nobody seriously thought it was going to happen right up until the point it happened. And so then it happens. And then Russia is the second largest, most well-equipped army in the world. They have fighting power similar to that of the United States. It looked like game over for Ukraine. And the thing that Putin now has to deal with is the fact that he's always wanted respect and a bit of fear and he pretty much had it up until the time he moved on ukraine obviously putin wants to just have his own way and part of that he thinks is his powerful military forces but at the same time now we know and this has huge implications for russia moving forwards because we all now know that the russian army is unimaginative they haven't changed their tactics it's now turns out since world war one just saying waves and waves of men yes we've now got drones but the ukrainians who have less of everything are doing a much better job with the tech than russia is then we've got things like the ubiquitous t-80s and t-90s all these battle tanks that russia has been using some of these are sort of considered cutting edge they just before the war, they had this brand new tank that had a fully automated turret and lots of military analysts were saying this could be a game changer. This could make all of the West tanks obsolete. And it turns out it doesn't work very well. And it turns out that in the modern age of drone warfare, tanks are staggeringly vulnerable to FPV drones. FPV, first-person view. In other words, what you get in something like Call of Duty. And the idea of drone warfare has been around for quite some time, but nothing like this intensity. The Americans have been flying drones over Afghanistan for 20, 25 years. But Taliban have no ability to shoot them down. 
The Russians do. And also, what's turning out is you just need lots of cheap drones. A drone that you can buy off the shelf, which you then add a hand grenade or an artillery shell to, and you've got its short range, but the perfect guided bomb. It's incredibly maneuverable. And if they're able to drop them rather than just blow up like suicide bomb, but if they are able to just drop them, they can come back again and then load them up again. And now there are layers of drones as well. There's spotter drones, attack drones. There's the Baba Yaga drones, which I'm not sure if they're referencing the witch from history or Slavic folklore traditions or whether they are referencing the nickname of John Wick, which they got wrong for further information. Have a look at the John Wick episode. But it is interesting when I see some of this FPV footage, it's got watermarks on it. And sometimes it's got the Predator from like the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie image on it. Or it's got something like the corn symbol, which is the God of Slaughter from Warhammer. That is a thing that I am seeing on some footage. Or something like the Punisher elongated skull symbol. These people have grown up with pop culture and are now implementing some of the harder, nastier, tougher bits of pop culture into their actual war. Is this any different from Donald Duck building munitions in propaganda animation from Disney in World War II? Probably not. If anything, it's a little bit cooler. But it is interesting that you're getting this blurring of these fantastical things. Frank Castle, the Punisher, doesn't exist, but we all know that he's very efficient at killing people. And so are these drone operating teams. We've got the drone technology, but going back, Russia invades. They start taking lots of territory, but very quickly it's obvious that the Russians have no idea how to do this properly. And their tech is old and it's incredibly inefficient and poorly maintained and things start falling to pieces. And so the push on Kyiv, where critically Putin was smart and he sent in his best paratrooper forces to take over the airport right next to Kyiv, because if he could take that, he's now got an air bridge. He can now keep shipping in heavy transports full of troops, ammunition, equipment, etc. Maybe even a few light armoured vehicles as well. And then he takes Kyiv and then he's got the nerve centre of Ukraine. And then it's not so much game over, but it's heading towards the end game. And it was the fighting around that airport was fierce. For a moment, it looked like Russia had taken it, but the Ukrainians pushed them out. And in essence, with hindsight, which again is dangerous, is like, oh, well, they were never going to take it. They got close, but they didn't. And at that point, there was the famous long convoy of Russian vehicles that had just queued up on roads because Ukraine can be quite marshy or quite icy, and those trucks needed to stay on tarmac, on asphalt. So they were easy to target sitting ducks, and in the end, the whole of the northern operation was pulled back again. Ukraine wins that. Then, at the end of year one, or the November-December of 2022, there is this major breakthrough in both the east, on the eastern borders of Russia, and round Kherson city as well. These are huge areas, important areas that are taken back by Ukraine. And if you like, again, using hindsight, which you really shouldn't do, Zelensky was at his peak. He talks to Congress. He's in America. It's the first time he visits out of it. And all of the European leaders want to be filmed 
shaking his hand, walking through the streets of Kiev. It could be the French president, it could be the Italian prime minister, the British prime minister, whatever. They all want to be seen to be doing their bit, and you're going to go up in the opinion polls if you're next to Zelensky. He's a boost to people's aspirations, if you like. So that's the first year. But what everybody was waiting for is 2023 and the counteroffensive. It was pretty clear that what all of this equipment that America, Europe were giving to the Ukrainians was to build up for a summer offensive against the Russians. Now, the Russians weren't done. They knew this was coming. They were watching the news as well. And they managed to mine the largest minefield and the densest minefield in the world, where literally they were sometimes stacking three mines on top of each other. So when that thing went boom, it really went boom. Now, there is things like minesweeping equipment, which in essence is in front of a tank and has a massive flail and a plow. It doesn't have the guns of a tank, but it's a tank chassis with all this armor at the front of it smashing stuff up, expecting these mines to explode. And the armor is thick enough to withstand even an anti-tank mine, but it's not big enough to deal with three anti-tank mines going off simultaneously. So the Russians, and this is the thing, what Putin has an advantage of is he has 60 years of Soviet-era equipment just sitting in silos and in barracks and places like that. There is satellite imagery of all of these places and how the amount of tanks in these storage facilities are going down and down and down. We are now seeing T-55s being put onto the battlefield. Now, so as not to get too technical, T-55, you've all seen a picture of it. It's got a really distinctive low-domed turret. doesn't have any bits sticking out of it apart from the gun. And that low-domed turret tank is the classic tank that you see at Tiananmen Square. The T-55 was the workhorse of the Soviet Union. It was first started to be manufactured in... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 1948 and was obsolete and being replaced by round about 1960 or the early 60s. And these things are being taken out of mothballs and being put onto the battlefield. And people have said, well, you know, sometimes they're being used really as mobile turrets, and on another occasion somebody was using it packed full of explosives to clear Ukrainian defences, but these things are few and far between. These things are utterly obsolete, and they're being blown to pieces by very cheap Ukrainian drones. But this minefield means that it doesn't matter how much the tactics and strategy are of the Ukrainians, how well equipped they are, it is just so dense that when the attacks started happening, and the idea is Russia, in essence, has a thin strip of land going from the Crimean Peninsula in the west all the way into the Donbass region in the east. And if Ukraine can break through that thin strip of land and get to the Azov Sea, then the Russians are now cut in two and they're going to have to start retreating. But to get to the Azov Sea, they're going to have to go through mile upon mile of the densest minefields ever lain in the whole of history. And to their credit, they pushed on. They were trying to get to this city called Tokmak, and they didn't get that far. They got to within about 15 miles of it. They pushed on and on and on, but they just weren't breaking. At one point, and I sent a, f- a message to a friend of mine, went, it, this feels like they've broken through the first two layers and they're about to do a big breakout. Russia recognized that and poured in their best troops to just slow down the Ukrainians, and now it's turned into a slog. Those big gains in places like Kherson or Kharkiv, they just did not happen in 2023. At the beginning of 2023, we get the low, slow, grinding, attritional war of Russia taking Bakhmut City. And in the end, using the Wagner Group and using tens of thousands of ex-prisoners as little more than cannon fodder, Ukrainians were sometimes forced to leave positions, not through any clever tactics by the Russians, But the Ukrainians had simply run out of ammunition, or their machine guns were so hot they couldn't fire any more, and still the Russians are coming, so we have to move back. That, it's a war crime. The Russians should not be using their soldiers so callously. Indeed, by the end of 2023, Ukraine was just referring to them as meat waves, and even news outlets started using that as well. That is just disgraceful. These are human lives we're talking about here. And the great tragedy of this is is not just for the Ukrainians, it's for the Russians as well, because their government is lying to them. They are saying that this is still a winnable... Well, they're not even calling it a war. It's still the special military operation. You can be sent to prison for eight years just calling it a war, although it is interesting that Putin increasingly is himself calling it a war, which technically means he needs to arrest himself. I digress. But it doesn't matter how much the government and the TV spins the news, 
there are tens of thousands of Russian families that have lost a father, a husband, a son. And the estimated casualties on the Russian side, and this is according to the British Defence Ministry, so they're not there to exaggerate, they're rather dryly pulling together. They're estimating, and casualties means dead and wounded, over 300,000, a third of a million men. And these are young men. These are men who have their lives ahead of them. And it is interesting, a lot of people say, well, you know, wounded's not as bad as dead. Obviously, I think in the great scheme of things, we'd all rather be wounded than dead. But at the same time, how horrific are those injuries? This isn't just a cool little cut on your cheek like you might get in an action movie. You might not have any legs anymore. And do you really think Russia is the kind of country that is great with wheelchair access and things like that? The slightly more insidious thing is because Putin has realised he needs more men. He did a partial mobilisation in 2022. It led to about a million Russian men leaving the country. That tells you that there's a lot of young people who do not agree with Putin. But it's led to them trying to entice people, getting great pay and great wages and, sadly, great life insurance for your family. And they're particularly targeting the regions. When we talk about Russia, we tend to think of places like St. Petersburg or Moscow, those sorts of places, Vladivostok maybe. So we think about the urban environments and those are valid and millions of people live there. But Russia is the largest country in the world. And I'm writing a book at the moment and I dug into this and my jaw kind of dropped. Siberia, which we've all heard of. We all know it's cold. We all know it's big. Siberia is an area that is larger than Western Europe. Now, there's only a few million people living there. It's pretty harsh environments, but it just shows you how big Russia is. But Siberia was not part of Russia in, let's say, the year 1600. Russian people, the Rus, emanated from Ukraine, from Kiev is the first city that the Rus had. And it gets complicated. Again, if you want to know more, listen to the episode I did on Ukraine, so the history of Ukraine, places like Novgorod. But it happened in the West, not in the East. Those areas were conquered centuries later by the likes of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. So the point is, you have these people who... Russian is not necessarily their first language. Ethnically, they are not Slavic. They are their own peoples. And it's these huge amounts of areas that have, they may be Muslim, they may ethnically look different, they might have different languages going on as well. Culturally, they may be part of Russia, but they are not Russian. And it's those areas, the much poorer agricultural areas, the periphery of Russian influence from Moscow, those are the places where they're trying to get young men. Because they're poor, the money looks better, and they're more tempted by it. There's the practical point from the point of view of their families. I can earn a lot more money joining the army than I can trying to eke out a subsistence farming existence in Siberia or working in an oil field in the Arctic Circle. That's probably just as dangerous as being in the army and you get paid better in the army at the moment. But at the same time, that means these ethnic groups are disproportionately losing more of their people. And the flip side of that means that because this has been the way Putin's been operating for over a year, he's running out of those people. The news is going round that it is a one-way ticket to Ukraine. And so he is going to have to now dig into 
the remaining middle classes of places like St. Petersburg or, or Moscow. And that means the oligarchs are going to get sweatier. In 2023, I remember it was a beautiful summer's day. I was in a stately home with a family and I was completely distracted because the news kept pouring in that, weirdly, Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group had decided to clearly rebel and was doing a march on Moscow. And this is the thing. You might be sitting there going, oh yeah, I remember that. But remember the day. Remember that at the time, it was like, is this the end of Putin? How far is Prigozhin going to get? Is Prigozhin going to become the new president of, of Russia? Is there going to be a peace treaty? All of this was up in the air. And it was the perfect example because it was like that during the American Revolution or the French Revolution. Only in hindsight, when the historians can pick at it and they go, oh, A led to B, led to C, it feels inevitable. But at the time, I didn't know that Prigozhin was going to just turn around. Clearly a deal had been made, but it shocked everybody because it really looked like he was going to get into Moscow. And it was amazing how many military units were putting up no resistance. Again, while there hasn't been a revolution against Putin, that shows you that people are not star-spangled, awesomely nationalistic about this. People know, even though the news is just saying everything is fine and Russia is awesome, people know that this has been going on for more than two years. And weirdly, 2024 is a really important year. In Russia, there's an election. Of course, Putin's going to win. But at least he has to have some kind of competition that will be raising some awkward questions. He's not going to look all-powerful or all-knowing. Ukraine, in theory, is also going to have an election. Whether or not that happens, it's, um, Zelensky wants to do it. But at the same time, it might be dangerous standing in a queue with Russian drones overhead. And America also has an election. And America, can be no doubt, is the one that's been doing the most support of Ukraine. So if we do get a Trump presidency, while it does give Biden enough time to get a few more things passed till January of 2025, and indeed the summer of 2024, that might be a time of another big offensive by Ukraine. But Ukraine defied expectations in 2022. The fundamental problem in 2023 is they didn't do another 22. And there's a lot of analogies at the moment about, oh, it's like World War One. No, territory, small amounts of territory is still being taken by Ukraine. And the thing is, we got spoiled. We thought, what chance does Ukraine have against Russia? Well, if Ukraine has fought them to a stalemate, a standstill, that is still an amazing victory for Ukraine. But it doesn't feel like it. We're hoping that Ukraine wins, but we're not giving them the tools to do so. They're not just getting F-16s when they ask for them. They're not getting as many chieftain tanks or leopard tanks or Abram tanks as they want. And again, all the training, money, ammunition, all this stuff is like, well, yeah, maybe. And Zelensky's done an amazing job of keeping Ukraine in the news and the stories until we get the Hamas attack on Israel. Now, I only have so much time on this, so I'm not going to get into the middle of, of that and the whys and wherefores. But the important thing is that suddenly the world was distracted by other forms of conflict. And Putin isn't necessarily on the side of Hamas or Israel, but he was on the side of just, oh, this is a distraction. And as people started talking about the amount of casualties initially created by Hamas, you know, 
just massacring innocent people. They're not the good guys. And they did kill more than a thousand people, including 250 people at a music concert. Again, whatever your views may be, just killing people whose crime is to listen to music, you're the bad guys in that situation. However, Israel's response, I'm assuming is exactly what Hamas wanted because very rapidly they have killed more civilians than Hamas have killed. In which case, if killing civilians are bad, then Israel also aren't the good guys in this situation. It is complicated and I just don't have time. But once we got to the point of Israel have now killed more civilians than Russia has killed in Ukraine, it makes it very hard for the West to say, well, Russia are the bad guys, but Israel are the good guys. It's a complicated conversation. And what Putin's looking for is to muddy the waters, to make things a little less black and white, to give him a way out. And so while their peace has not yet been declared, generally when you look at war, it's interesting. Most people look at, oh, well, you know, there's World War II. You know, we fought the Nazis to a standstill and they were losing everywhere and so they total capitulation. True, most wars aren't ended that way. Look at how Vietnam ended. Look at how the Hundred Years' War ended or the American War of Independence. All these things end up with a treaty and it ends up with a treaty when at least one of the sides can't go on fighting anymore. Now, Ukraine will fight till pretty much the last man, but at the same time, Europe will not give them a blank check and already clearly have demonstrated that, will not give them a blank check forever. And at some point, the weapons will run out. But Russia has been absolutely neutered. Nobody's scared of the Russian army anymore. Then, just before the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have two, well, one very big story and one minor one. The minor one, first of all, Tucker Carlson, a right-wing journalist in America who was so right-wing he got kicked out of Fox News, for heaven's sakes. He set up his own thing. He ends up getting an interview with Putin because Putin knows that he will say anything he wants. This is an example of a journalist trying to be the news it is completely self-serving, and it's propaganda. So you could argue, well, of course, every time Zelensky speaks, it's propaganda. But this is deliberate, manipulated, and the point is, it's not Putin propaganda. This is an American doing it for him. And it's kind of disgraceful, and that's all I'll say on the subject. Then we move on to the far more important thing about Zelensky removing, dismissing the top military commander, Zeluzhny. And this led to a misunderstanding by a lot of people going, well, you know, this is just a power play between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. Maybe he wants to get into politics and he's trying to protect himself. Well, if you actually look at history, unless you are sweeping from one-sided victory to one-sided victory over a period of a war, not a campaign, but just an overall war, invariably there is a mixing up of the general staff because after a while people recognize your tactics you have a favored activity to do it for example in the u.s civil war the union was forever changing its generals largely because they were pretty bad but in world war one all sides did it in world war two all sides did it in the napoleonic wars it was Napoleon at the top, so you could argue that that general never changed, but he kept changing his marshals and used them for different things in different situations. So ultimately, 
this switch around, and let's not get into names, but the new leader of the Ukrainian army was the man behind the surprise and highly successful assault in the Kharkiv, in the far eastern direction, which completely caught the Russians by surprise and managed to regather thousands of square kilometers of space. He was also the general in charge of defending Kyiv in the initial onslaught. He is a highly competent and capable general, and I think it's safe to say that Zelensky just wants a fresh approach in this situation. Now, just because you change the man doesn't mean that you're going to get different results, but at least you've got a, a fresh pair of eyes on the same problems. So that's what's happened there, and I think it's been a little overstated in some news outlets that this is incredibly dumb or highly politicized view by Zelensky. Churchill did it, Lincoln did it, it's just not a thing that when you look into history is particularly unusual. In fact, if he stuck with the same general throughout the entire war, that would be more unusual. Just going back to the counteroffensive of 2023, generally when you're attacking an enemy's defensive positions, you need to have three to one superiority because in the modern warfare, you're probably going to have three times the amount of casualties than the defenders because they're sitting safely in bunkers and they've got the machine guns ready to go across the field and all that kind of stuff. Ukraine is doing such a good job and Russia is doing such a terrible job of training their troops that that three to one ratio was the other way around. There have been some attempts during the winter of 23-24, you had Russia attacking Avdivka in the east. If you look on a map, it's like, yeah, you could absolutely pincer that, you can absolutely cut it off, but they were at some times losing 900 men a day killed all casualties that's the russians and so the ratio it's much murkier exactly what the casualty rates are with ukraine but even in that situation it was like an eight nine to one ratio in favor of ukraine in that situation ukraine can fight battles like that forever because russia will run out of men way before ukraine does but then let's come to the future when will peace be declared i have no idea and you don't either at this point of time so again watch it when it's like, well, you know, Hitler was always going to shoot himself in the bunker and peace would always be declared in May of 1945 in Europe. No, wasn't as obvious as that at all, just like now. But also, and I've been watching increasingly more and more videos, political videos and economic videos saying China is the one to watch out for here because China, prior to this, had declared that it was a relationship without limits. But China already has clearly demonstrated this relationship doesn't have limits because they're not sending tanks and airplanes and ammunition. They're sending things like semiconductors that can be used in a washing machine, yes, but more likely to be used in a drone, so they have a dual usage there. So China's helping them a bit and buying up all this cheap Russian oil, but at the same time, they are leveraging the fact that Russia can only sell it really to India and China. So they're getting great deals on the oil, but at least Russia's getting some money in that. But those deals aren't being done in dollars. They're being done in yuan, which is the Chinese currency. Russia can't buy a load of stuff from, let's say, Canada in Chinese currency. They're going to have to use the dollar. And so at the start of all of this, everybody assumed Russia was the senior partner. As this has gone along, it's pretty clear China is the senior partner and they're only getting stronger. And in the very far east of China, there is an area which is now part of Russia that used to be part of Imperial China. And China has been showing how much it's wanted to reclaim any territory, no matter how dubious that used to be part of China. It could be Tibet, could be the South China Sea with that 
infamous five-line dot around which sort of cuts out places like the Philippines and Vietnam, etc. doesn't seem to recognize that any of those countries exist. But if China was to take that land, what's Russia got? Even if peace was declared tomorrow, the Russian army is in tatters. And China's, I don't know how good it is, but it's going to be better equipped it may not be necessarily better trained than the Russians. The Russians at least are slightly battle-hardened, but what their tactics have shown is the only thing they know how to do is send over rubbish troops at the enemy so you can then spot where the enemy positions are so then you can use your better troops to try and take them out. I have no idea how good China's army is, but it's good enough to take those territories in the east. And if they go a little bit further into areas that weren't quite Chinese but are very, very close to that territory, you get Lake Baikal. 20% of the world's fresh water is in Lake Baikal, and China needs more water for irrigation, but also for its thirsty, large population. So, when you put those two things together, who knows if this morphs into a different war, and suddenly Russia is the victim. But all of this is conjecture. We don't know. Maybe none of this will happen, but it's one of these things where this will be an interesting podcast to listen to in a year's time. How much do I get right? How much do I get wrong? And this is how history works. The people actually making the plans on the day had no idea what was going to happen next. So easy to sit there with hindsight. And so because of that, this is why Ukraine is important. And I still think we need to support Ukraine. And with that, I'm going to say, look, I'm, I'm at Jem Twitter threads, all that good stuff. Please click subscribe. Please give us a review. Thank you very much. But as always, another episode coming soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.